Hello, everyone, and welcome to um, the Conware Book Club. Thank you all for joining us this afternoon. Um, really appreciate you coming in and seeing us on this beautiful day in Ireland. I hope the sun is shining where you are, and I just want to give you all a, a warm welcome to, um, to, to Kyle Moore and to the book club. My name is Lisa, Lisa Caulfield, and I'm the director of the, the, the center, the global center here in Kyle And it's with great pleasure that we kick off our second installment of the second series of the, of the Kyle Moore book club with um, Professor Declan Kybert. Just to give you an update, um, our uh, registration list for participants is upwards of the 733 mark which is really quite incredible. Um, we have participants representing 19 countries worldwide, which um, we are thoroughly grateful for. And I wanna just pay attention to the, the sponsors because really this couldn't happen if we didn't have the collaboration of, of several key partners um, on campus. And um, it, they've made this concept a reality for us. And, First and foremost, I'll start off with Notre Dame International, which is where the global centers are housed. Um, of course, the Keogh Nocton Institute for Irish Studies, where if it not were for the Institute for Irish Studies, we all would not be here in Ireland. So it's wonderful that they're a partner with us. Um, we also have the College of Art and Letters, the Keogh School of Global Affairs, Notre Dame Learning, of course, and the Notre Dame Alumni Association. Just to give you for those of you who are joining us for the first time, we are going to have Declan um, give a recap of his lectures that we had pre-recorded. And then we're going to head into uh, um, a brief kind of breakout session uh, with fellow participants. And this enables you to meet with other participants from around the world and discuss today's topic and the questions that Declan has given us to uh, ponder and really how it impacts you and your reading of the texts. Now, don't, if you don't feel like going into the breakout sessions, I don't want you to feel that you have the you need to, to, to go into the group session, the group breakout. You are more than happy to opt to stay in to the main room until the groups have had their 10 minute conversation. Um, so you can opt not to be in a breakout session and then you can just stay in the main room until we come back to start the, the session. But generally speaking, the breakout sessions have been quite well received and been a, it's been a great opportunity for people to, to meet and um, it's been a kind of success of the book club. So I encourage you to, to participate. And um, if you have any questions for Professor Kybert, I would encourage you to um, use the Google form that we're sharing now in the chat function. Um, so that gives us an opportunity to review the questions in advance, and then we'll um, get to them in a timely manner. So, so please um, submit your questions. If you have any questions from today's um, readings and lectures, we will try to answer them and uh, given the time constraint, because we will finish on time, but um, if, you, if we don't get to the questions that you've given us, then we will um, um, put them on the LinkedIn discussion board. So we can go back into the LinkedIn discussion board, which we moderate. 
So uh, without further ado, I want to uh, thank and reiterate my sincerest gratitude to Professor Declan Kybird, who has so given so generously of his time for this summer series and uh, is really the faculty uh, member responsible for coming up with the topic of this series. So I'll now call on uh, Declan to give us an overview of this week's topic concerning blindness and insight uh, in the works of our chosen authors. Hi, Declan. Hi, Lisa. Thank you very much. Um, I'm in, I got interested in this topic many years ago because my roommate in college, and it's over 45 years ago, was himself going blind. And um, for most of later years in which we were friends, he was officially blind. And um, we often talked together about the treatment of the topic in literature. And there has been often, as you know, a tendency to see blind people as having a kind of special deep inner vision, which somehow compensates for the actual problem they have negotiating the world. But my roommate said that really most of the day he spent going from one piece of furniture to another, feeling his way through our room, through the college, etc., etc. In other words, rather than having a metaphorical inner vision, if you like, of the world, the world had been completely literalized to him in a way it is not to most people who have full command of all their senses. So I, I chose two passages, one from uh, Joyce and one from Yeats, in which to kick off our discussion. The Joyce one is interesting because in it, um, Leopold Bloom, who is the main protagonist, helps a blind young man across the street. But as he does so, he imagines what his life must be like and says things like, tastes all different for him, sizing me up, I dare say, from my hand. Thank you, sir, he says, and Bloom thinks he knows I'm a man, voice. How on earth did he know a van was there? He must have felt it. And Bloom thinks then a queer idea of Dublin he must have tapping his way round by the stones. And then Bloom, who is a tremendously empathetic figure, he's always imagining what it's like to be others. He says, look at all the things they can learn to do, read with their fingers, tune pianos, and then we are surprised they have any brains. Um, and he says, the sense of smell might be stronger too. They say you can't taste wines with your eyes shut or a cold in the head. And he goes on to imagine what life must be like, you know, in terms of sex, smell, food, etc. And um, although it's written in some of the, if you like, less politically correct language of 1904, there is a tremendous infeeling with the character. And that scene in which Bloom helps the blind young boy, young man who's a piano tuner, that foretells the great meeting of the book, which is when Bloom helps Stephen Dedalus, himself um, partially sighted, uh, to uh, evade the wiles of the Madame in the brothel. So it's a tremendously resonant passage. The other one I picked was uh, on Balia Strand by W.B. Yeats, at the climax of which a blind man is carried by a fool to whom he gives instructions. And uh, their relation is a kind of metaphor for the relation between Cúchulain, the warrior hero, and King Conqueror. And Yeats once described this as a wise man who was blind from very wisdom and an empty man that thrust him from his place and saw all that could be seen from very emptiness. But I think the key moment in that play is the fact 
that the blind man never asks his equivalent figure, Cucullin, do you know what's happening, that you're about to kill your son? Um, and in fact, the chorus says towards the end, life drifts between a fool and a blind man to the end, and nobody can know his end. Um, and it's an amazing conclusion because um, the blind man and fool loot the royal ovens while Cucullin meaninglessly fights the waves. And I've often thought how incredible it is that years before the Easter Rising, Yeats could have imagined this truth in this play of how the underlings would loot, literally, while the overlings made noble speeches about uh, heroism and so on. Uh, it's as if Yeats anticipates O'Casey's play, The Plough and the Stars. So uh, it struck me that both of these writers are raising very important questions about disability and also about whether it can be or cannot be a source of vision. So this is a question I'd raise now in the wider context. In, in, in ancient Greek literature, being blind, as we know, with Oedipus was sometimes seen as a punishment of the gods. So, you know, a, a punishment for something terrible one had done. But on the other hand, people speak of someone who has second sight and who does indeed have a wisdom that's denied to commonplace people. So I suppose a question arises then, does the lack of sight or indeed the lack of any other sense sharpen the other senses? Did the fact that, you know, Homer and Milton and so many others were blind actually sharpen their word use? which is a question we might consider. Um, in Gaelic tradition, um, the, the, the word dal means dark, and it also can mean blind. There were lots of famous poets with names like Taig Dal O'Higgins, uh, blind Tim O'Higgins, or indeed Anthony Raftery, who was a great hero poet for Yeats. He was blind. Um, I don't know why there are so many blind poets in Gaelic tradition. Um, Daniel Corkery suggested in his book, The Hidden Ireland, it could be that the rooms in which they grew up were poorly ventilated and did not have what we would call modern chimneys. And that as a result, many, many people went blind because of all the smoke-filled rooms. And some of those who did then found relief by becoming, if you like, the poets, the wordsmiths in their communities. Um, J.M. Singh wrote a great play, The Well of the Saints, which is about such a couple who make a kind of living by weaving um, baskets at a crossroads, but who basically are gifted talkers. That is their special gift. And, and the community tells them they're beautiful. And as they have no visual evidence to the contrary, they believe it. But then a saint comes along and cures their blindness. And this destroys their lives because now they can see how unbeautiful they are, but even worse, how unglamorous the actual world around them is. And they say, may God protect us from the words of the blind. The last thing they want is the kind of intensified vision that this couple would give. And this often reminds me of, say, scenes such as in Gulliver's Travels, where when Gulliver goes to Brobdingnag, 
and he's so small and petite, he sees everything up close, like we would up close in a movie, um, the close-up. But it's not aphrodisiac, it's the opposite. When Gulliver sees the great ladies of Brobdenag with their breasts partially exposed, all he can see are the pores in their skin. They become almost, as he says, nauseous to him. So it's a question, I suppose, whether people like that see too much, whether there is an analogy between the blind person and the artist, because both have in common the fact of seeing more than conventional people may consider it decent to see. But on the other hand, maybe they're right. Maybe what they see is the truth. And uh, these are interesting questions, and they are raised particularly in Gaelic tradition in the way in which disability is dealt with. Um, for instance, in, in, in a passage in Ulysses, uh, Bloom is uh, in the Ormond Hotel and he's drinking with some of his friends and colleagues, but the waiter who brings them the drink is both, uh, 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 he's bald, but he's also deaf and his sight seems to be impaired. And Bloom actually says of him, he see hears lip speech. He see hears left speech, lip speech. And then Bloom says deaf bothered because the word bothered in Hiberno-English comes from the Gaelic word bower, which means deaf. Um, and I think it's fascinating that um, even the question of mental disability in Gaelic tradition has a kind of poetic explanation. P people stayed in the community, they were not institutionalized. This would have been true not just of blind people, but of people who had mental problems. And people with mental problems were called a dinaladea, a person with God, someone who'd already, in a sense, gone back to God or in the act of seeing more, could imagine a, a divine type condition. So it's really interesting just to look at both, well, well really the ambiguity with which all this is treated um, by tradition. And um, I suppose wonder how much insight these great artists had into what we now consider disability studies. Jacqueline, um, when we, we were talking earlier, you were um, mentioning about blindness in the Gaelic tradition. And in my kind of reconnaissance for this afternoon's talk, looked up Anthony Rafferty and found that um, smallpox was actually a, um, a, a condition that caused blindness. And Anthony Rafferty was one such who was afflicted with smallpox in his childhood. And um, he survived um, by, um, I suppose, depending on his wits and, and, and fear, uh, or he, of the fear that he puts into local people of, of suffering from this blindness. Um, so Rafferty as a 19th century poet from Mayo would be quite known in these, in these neck of the woods. So it seems that blindness from childhood um, is a recurring theme within this tradition. And 
um, you know, playing tunes on a fiddle or creating songs or sing songs as he wanders the west of Ireland is a way of him making a living for himself, but also um, leading a sort of nomadic existence from, from town to town. And we have oral stories, the oral tradition here of people going over the mountains and sharing in these traditions. So he becomes this, this poet and he's heard about from his travels. Um, so I thought, I thought that was interesting that Rafferty was blinded by smallpox and that is similar to what happens to another kind of, another musician, um, Turlock O'Carolan, yes. um, who, who, who was one of the, the great Irish bards. That's right. Um, and it's fascinating when one reads about these people, how agile and adept they were despite the disability they suffered. For instance, there are accounts of Raftery jumping over um, brooks and small rivers, and even doing so with a sack of potatoes on his back. There's a mention of it in one of Seamus Heaney's essays, and he says it's a brilliant image for the risky buoyancy, which poets, all poets attempt. The fact that Raftery could do this kind of thing. Um, I think what you've mentioned is very interesting, um, Lisa, in another way. I'm sure you have been in the west of Ireland, where you are now, at sessions, musical sessions, where people singing would hold hands and at the same time close their eyes, acting as if they were blind, even though they're not. But it was as if in order to sing, one needed to concentrate and to close out the distractions of the physical world, if you like. And I've read in many accounts that this was particularly true in the winter time, that people were huddling together for an almost tactile comfort of touch, but they were also closing their eyes so that they would concentrate more brilliantly on the song or the poem. And that's almost as if they are envious of the condition of blindness and want to duplicate it, at least in the act of art. We see that with the Shanos tradition, with the, the way they would sing. And I see it in even young modern artists who have taken up the Shanos way of singing and dancing. Um, a, a very well-known dancer, Emma O'Sullivan, who doesn't have um, a preordained way of dancing. She listens to the music, but she listens to it with her eyes closed. And she says that she feels the rhythm coming up through the boards on the floor, whether it be in a, in a tavern or in a uh, pub or in a home, she feels the music and that's how she, she, she changes the way she dances. So it absolutely is a tradition here. Um, what I found interesting as well with Turlock uh, Declan, if, if I may go back to him, because it goes to the symbols and there's a lot of rich symbols in, 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 um, Yeats's poetry and especially on Ambalia's strand, but the symbol of the harp and, and how he became such a harpist and such a well-known harpist and, and, and called the last of the true Irish bards uh, and, and many to, to be Ireland's national com composer. Um, but he was blinded in, at the age of 18 and then music was the only way that the occupation that, could, that was left for him. So he took up the harp. But what we found was that in the 19th century, there's this Irish harp society that was formed. Um, in, 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 in actually on St. Patrick's Day in 18, 
1808 and then revived in 1818. And it made it its mission to select poor boy, poor blind boys and girls um, who had been afflicted by smallpox as pupils so that they can earn a living through playing the harp um, and as well as promoting the study of Irish language and history and antiquities. So I found um, this in, the, in, in O'Curry's Manners and Customs of the Ancient Irish, but I thought that was fascinating how the harp was used as a means of promoting um, for young people a way uh, into Irish language and the history. Yes, and I think it's so fascinating that the examples you've given just now are of people who were once sighted, but then lost their sight through an illness, smallpox or whatever, um, which must be a, a terrible thing to experience, but at least one has some sense, I suppose, of what, you know, men and women landscapes look like, even though one has been deprived of the capacity to see them anymore. Um, you know, obviously Milton would be another example of a writer whose experience was somewhat similar. But I think that has often struck me is that much of the description of the world of the blind is given not by blind people themselves, say like Helen Keller, but by the sighted and that they have to imagine really in a very empathetic way what that might be like and it's quite a difficult challenge. I think for instance of Brian Friel's play Molly Sweeney being a brilliant example of that kind of empathy which is somewhat similar to the empathy I was reporting Leopold Bloom as showing uh, in the book but, 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 it, but it is interesting uh, to in that context, to pit Singh's play against all those truisms, because the reverse happens there. People who are blind, which must very seldom actually happen, are given their sight by a man ironically called the saint. And, and, and the play which early on says, God protect us from the words of the blind, because of course the curse of a blind person could be seen as lethal ends with, uh, late on in the play, you get uh, the Lord protect us from the saints of God. <laughs> the saint becomes the lethal one because he has restored the sight of a world that is just almost intolerable. So it's so interesting that, I mean, not only do you have texts about people who are just blind through life, but you have ones about changes of state, which seem to me in a way trying to comment, I suppose, on the fact that there are different, very different kinds of, of, of vision. I suppose we're talking about a tradition with authors, though. There seems to be quite a number of authors that have the onset of blindness. Like when you talk, like in your lecture, you mentioned O'Casey, who had, had a high trouble from, from, from the smoke in the house. Um, James Joyce himself had eye, like continuous eye doctors and that's how he came to know Samuel Beckett. But there seems to be a, a recurring theme uh, amongst these Irish writers uh, of eyesight's uh, deficiency. Um, totally, yeah. I mean, Yeats even mentions it in his beautiful poem, Among School Children. He's talking about himself at the age of 60 as a blear-eyed poet trying to win wisdom out of midnight toil, a blear-eyed poet. Um, 
Beckett had huge problems uh, with his eyes. Um, I mean, Seamus Dean, my colleague, once said in a kind of jocose way, and he meant it well, of course, he wasn't being unsympathetic, you could almost concoct a glaucoma theory of Irish literature. And um, it, it seems to be so that, that so many uh, of the leading figures, not just in Gaelic tradition, when you know, there were reasons, diseases, smoky rooms, but in more modern times uh, have, 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 have experienced this. And, and uh, you would wonder, I mean, I, I remember um, reading an interesting essay about blindness and insight, the link between the two. And the argument basically was that if a person chooses to blind themselves to say three-fifths of reality, just in the way they live, they will achieve incredibly piercing insights into the other two-fifths and sound brilliant, incisive, deeply intellectual to, if you like, lesser mortals. But in a way, they are achieving this piercing insight by blocking off um, a certain amount of the real world. And, you know, I suppose we could all do that. Well, isn't no better musician who does this as Van Morrison, Declan? <laughs> well, <laughs> he literally turns his back to the audience when he plays. Yes, he does. And he, 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 um, I remember reading a poem by Brendan Kennelly about a boy at a wedding who sang beautifully, but who literally, in order to do it, turned his back on the audience. It was almost as if he could physically render and see the audience and they were a monumental distraction to the beauty of the note that he was seeking in the music. And certainly I think Van Morrison sometimes regards audiences as a kind of minor impediment to the astral insights he's seeking. I mean, <laughs> we've all heard that story about someone who was in an elevator with him and said, oh, Mr. Morrison, thank you for the music, quoting ABBA, a less exalted set of musicians. And, and, and apparently Van the Man said, at what floor are you getting out? <laughs> <laughs> well, there is, and you mentioned it in your lecture as well, um, what I believe Freud said when, you know, the couples in the bed and, and then it's actually, the, the, there's actually four, it's the idealized version of, of themselves there. They're, so there is that third eye, so that we can say that there's the, the unknown presence that maybe artists play to. Well, Shakespeare said love looks not with the eyes, but with the mind, and therefore is winged Cupid painted blind. And I think that's what Yeats meant. Um, Yeats wrote it somewhat differently. He said, uh, may maybe the bride bed brings despair because each an imagined image brings and finds a real image there. And um, I, I actually feel that his wife, George, must have been potentially quite hurt by those lines if she read them shortly after he and she had married. But she was so brilliant, she got him to try to well, to do the automatic writing and to imagine things otherwise. But yeah, it, 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 it goes back to what Freud said, that, that, that 
um, we all have idealized images, not just of ourselves, but of the beloved of other people. And yet somehow they have to be harmonized with the actual persons who exist. And in fact, Carl Jung, the great psychologist, he said in his famous essay, Marriage as a Psychological Experience, that that's what marriage actually was, learning to adjust the ideal to the real image, not giving up all of the ideal, not surrendering totally to the real, but somehow fusing them in a sane, intelligent way that made life livable and even at moments beautiful. And I actually think that's what happened in Yeats's own marriage, that he married on the rebound possibly from Maud and uh, married a young and a woman much younger than himself. But I think he fell in love with his wife after he married her, which in one way is a beautiful kind of story, but I think it's true. Well, there's another whole session on their relationship, I feel. <laughs> Just Indeed. George and Yates alone, there would be a whole book club. Uh, well, thank you for that, Declan. And um, I'll use this time now um, to, um, for us to break out into the sessions now to discuss the topics and the, um, the, the, the work that you read. Yeah, so these are the two questions that you, if you don't mind um, having a, ponder over while you have it. Uh, you, now again, you, we suggest that you appoint a room leader. We really hope that you can uh, facilitate the, the discussions amongst yourselves and send us questions in, in the form that we've shared with you. Uh, of course, we expect that we, you, we follow the rules of civil discourse and that you respect each other's comments. And so, but please note that if you choose not to participate in the breakout rooms, it's not a reason to leave at this time, simply come back to the main room and we'll return. Um, at the eight or minute mark, there will be a warning that there'll be two minutes coming back and that'll give you time to wrap up the discussion and send on our question. So we're gonna break out now and we'll see you in 10 minutes. Hello and welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that in little interlude and thank you for submitting the questions. I um, appreciate it as um, we have a few now. So, and, and if you have more as we talk, please continue to send and um, you'll see it in the chat room right now. Zoe has put up where you can um, ask another question should you um, have one while we're talking. So I'll launch right into it. Um, uh, this is from um, Madeline from Providence. Declan, um, I'll just read it. Professor Declan Kyber discusses the relationship between blindness and insight. Is there insight inherent in having to relate to the world in a completely foreign way for those who are sighted? In this way, disability does not, does imply insight, a curious idea. Yes. Um, I think that's true, and it's a very good point. And, um, you know, there's an old saying that the really wise person is the one to whom the whole world is a foreign country. Yeah? That, that, that if you feel too much at home in a space, you may cease to notice its salient elements. You just, it's like the wallpaper in your own living room. So, so, so yes, um, to negotiate a place almost in its foreignness may be a way of knowing it more intimately. 
And I was saying that about my old roommate many years ago, that he probably knew every table and chair in the rooms we shared far better than I did because of his condition. Um, and and uh, that does, I think, link with the insight of the artist, which we were speaking about. And it may be why so many, uh, as, as you were saying, musicians and writers have, I mean, not just the challenge of blindness, but of other disabilities as, uh, uh, as well. Um, in fact, I presume one could even construct an argument that being an artist is in some ways disabling because one is super sensitive and the kind of loud robustness of the everyday world may make it a difficult place for the artist to negotiate. I, 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 I've often thought that say someone like Sylvia Platt, who was a super sensitive soul, in one way, the amazing fact about her life is not that eventually she committed suicide, but the number of days on which she got up and got through the day and wrote brilliant poems and looked after her children and dealt with her rather demanding husband, etc., etc., etc. You know, when you think of it that way, things can be almost inverted. I will say this from hosting music residencies, art residencies, and creative writing programs here at Kyanmar how much the artist suffers um, and how excruciating it is to put to pen to paper sometimes and to put art like to paint onto the like it is quite um it really is quite a lonely task and and it's really um i can see it being painful for some artists well well that was why i mentioned in the early part of my introductory comments the phrase Adam's Curse, which is the title of an early Yeats poem. Uh, and Adam's Curse is, of course, that we must labor to be beautiful. That when Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden, they knew they had to earn a living by the sweat of their brows, etc. But, but Yeats sees this in particular in terms of what the artist must do. Remember I quoted, a line must take us hours maybe, but if it does not seem a moment's thought, our stitching and unstitching have been naught. In other words, it could take him hours or days to get a few lines right. Um, and, and, and this is, I think, part of, yeah, the sensitivity of the artist, total sens sensitivity to the meaning of every word. And, and uh, you, this is also true of Joyce, uh, the famous sentence, uh, perfume of embraces all him assailed with hungered flesh obscurely he mutely craved to adore and Frank Budgen said that's just two lines and he says yes but I've been working at it for days um, I, 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 I do think that um, there, there is a very high price to be paid for this kind of total sensitivity and, and this is what Yeats is talking about, of course, in the most beautiful of all his poems among school children, that, you know, women labor to be beautiful and to maintain beauty. Uh, women labor in childbirth, as you were saying, Lisa, in the interval. Um, uh, uh, the, the nuns who worship the image of a suffering Jesus also know pain in so many ways. 
and 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 there is no escape from it really um one has to deal with it um i'm gonna go back to stick with blindness um from yusuf um he talks about oedipus's punishment by enforced blindness that kept off stage gloucester's in king lear presented on stage horrific scene violence as a theme of human on human punishment rather than divine or on human punishment have you a comment to that well i do indeed in the sense that um when lear king lear is on the heap and at the age of 80 he's trying to learn wisdom very belatedly and they talk about the physical world and he has really lost sight and he says about the world i see it feelingly and it's what I meant about my roommates, that that was how he saw the world too. And I presume as many people get older, you know, I'm getting older and I bump into things. I see things feelingly sometimes too. Um, it is so interesting the way in which, especially the end of a life is often identified with the loss of sight. Even in another brutal way, and it's good, the questioner Yusuf mentioned violence. When you think of people being executed, inverted, perverted commas, in regimes which believe in capital punishment, they have often blindfolded them as a prelude, literally, to taking their life. And I was thinking when I prepared my notes for this afternoon's uh, discussion, when I was a boy, we played a game called Blind Man's Buff where you tied uh, something like uh, the cloth that a condemned man would have tied around his eyes before an execution. I think now we are much too culturally sensitive to encourage children to play such a game, but it's not that long ago that this was a game, literally. But, 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 it, but, but it kind of has to do with um, perhaps also a certain kind of empathy with what it's like to be blind and to have to feel your way around the place, but literally imaged in the end of life in terms of, uh, yeah, the execution of prisoners. Well, I, I, I'm going to read Roberta's question here from South Bend because I think it dovetails nicely to what you just said. Um, in reading Bloom's encounter with the blind youth, I did not get a sense of empathy from Bloom's comments, mainly because he did not engage with the youth directly. He preferred to come to his own conclusions without trying to discover if his assumptions aligned with the lived experience of a blind person. This seems to me more of a well-meaning, sighted person's effort to think empathetically without actually being empathetic. Could you comment? Well, that is a very stringent critique of a character who most of us are taught to love by that point in the book. But I know exactly what you mean. Um, now, you can, in another interpretation, see this as a sign of Bloom's incredible discretion. Um, um, Bloom actually raises the question himself. I'm just reading from my page 231 in The Penguin. Say something to him. This is Bloom talking to himself. And then he says, better not to do the condescending. In other words, anything he could say might seem hurtful or insulting. They mistrust, he says, what you tell them. Pass a common remark. And then Bloom says, 
the rain kept off. <laughs> and the next line is, no answer. So, yes, in one sense, he hasn't engaged at any level of depth with the feelings of empathy, which he contains within his own mind, rather than sharing. But I think what he is aware of is, is that if he says anything, it may come out wrong or seem condescending. As in, for instance, the sort of, does he take sugar remark that might be made, you know, about an invalid in the old days and how careful one should be not to do that kind of thing. Um, it's a good comment though. Bloom is himself in some ways marooned for reasons we all understand inside his own self. And uh, perhaps he's identifying with that element in the blind boy, but it, yeah, it, it's possible he could have done more in the scene. It's also possibly could have been incredibly unintentionally indiscreet and hurtful. And it's also possibly could have done a lot less. I have another question from Julian uh, from South Bend. You've done a lovely job of explaining the legacy of the blind in Irish literature. Could you do the same for the fool? He is a mainstay in Yeats, Singh and Beckett, but how about before that? Um, well, um, I mentioned the phrase Dina Ledia from the Irish, which means a person with God. And that was frequently used to describe people who would say in a Shakespeare play be called the fool. And, and the idea of course, as Julian knows is that the fool often had a kind of license to say what was true, but unsayable by ordinary mortals. What I mentioned before about the artist seeing more than is decent to see, saying more than is discreet to say. Um, I, I think the fool in Gaelic literature works very much along those lines. But I think the idea of Dina Ledia, a person with God, it's almost as if it recognizes that the human journey is a journey back to the divine. And rather than stigmatizing people as in some way mentally defective, that phrase recognizes that they may be more advanced on a journey to more spiritual zones. And I think it's very interesting that, um, you know, Gaelic Ireland did not create the kind of institutions for the so-called mentally ill that became such a feature of, say, British and French culture in the 19th century. You know, the kind of institution that Charcot was running in Paris when Freud was his student. Uh, that Gaelic Ireland was much more of like mind with the more recent dispensation, which believes that the best therapy of all is to be in the community. And in fact, the dinner Lydia is a test of the community's imagination and tolerance, rather than someone who actually has what you might call an ailment. So, so um, yeah, I, I think the, the, the Gaelic attitude to, um, if you like, mental, disturbance is a very, very healthy one. I always think of, um, I think Joyce actually deals with it a lot in um, Ulysses, 
that some people are considered eccentric to the point of illness. Um, Dennis Breen, for instance. But Bloom is, like Joyce, recognizing that the eccentric is simply someone with a deeper than average understanding of what passes as normal. And this is also true of the fool. The intensification of understanding may make the fool seem like a deviant when in fact he or she is just blurting out a truth that most people know. We have a question from Madeline uh, from Providence. I think the resurrected body of Christ, which still in its presumably perfect form, bears the wounds of the crucifixion, sheds insight into the topic of the bruised body and insight. Declan, do you have thoughts on this? Well, I do, because when, when, when Jesus was scourged, he was mocked. The crown of thorns was literally a mockery of kingship, and he was called a fool. And yet, the whole teaching of Christianity through Jesus is that he who calls his brother a fool will be condemned to the fires of hell. So at the core of the Christian philosophy is something much more like the Gaelic philosophy, as I've just outlined it in sketched form. Um, so yes, I mean, there is a sense in which Jesus provides a model for, if you like, the holy fools that you, you find in Dostoevsky and in a lot of Russian writing and philosophy. But I, I would say the same about um, a lot of Irish writing. You know, there's a short story by Wilde in which one of the characters appears to be deviant, possibly a fool. But then it's discovered that he has the stigmata bleeding from his hands and the analogy with Jesus is clearly implied. And uh, this, this recurs so, I mean, I know in one way everyone wants to be like Jesus and in another way it's a kind of blasphemy to imagine you even could be. But there are quite a number of stories which I think are in folk tradition and on which Wilde was drawing when he wrote some of his fairy tales which bring out this analogy. The time went by so quickly, Declan. I have um, two comments to leave with because they're so powerful. I thought I'd just share them with the group. And I want to again thank everyone for um, for submitting these questions. I'm going to send them on to Declan as well. Perhaps we can we'll post his responses in a way on LinkedIn or share it because they're just such great questions. Um, Tom from Fort Worth, Fort Worth says this comment, did you know that the program of liberal studies had a blind professor in the 19, in 1960s and 1970s? His name was Professor Stephen Rogers and taught the great book seminar, but also taught the novel, a very remarkable and very or very remarkably drama. Um, he attended the last two classes. He was an excellent professor and I felt it was remarkable that a blind teacher should lead us the sighted through the visual and audio me medium of drama. That's so interesting and not to cut across, but when you think of Borges, the great Argentinian writer, who was a wonderful teacher and speaker, but was himself blind. And he came to Dublin for Joyce's centenary to celebrate Joyce. And I think he was particularly aware of 
a kind of fellow feeling on that basis. Uh, the other is, um, is, is Eileen from Chicago, and she um, says that she appreciates the comments from her group, the People with God. We discussed in our group how obvious it is to Irish Americans who visit Ireland that such people are included much more in family and communal life. Uh, something we respond to positively and wish we could observe back home. So I'd say, Eileen, that's an observation of the, of the communal um, way in which Irish people live. So um, thank you for observing that. Um, I want to thank Declan uh, again for his ama amazing session this, this afternoon. And I want to thank you all for participating. I encourage you, if you have not seen the lectures, to go back to the sessions on, on Think ND and to, and to review the, um, the lectures that Declan has um, imparted with us. Uh, session three lectures are up for next week as well. So please, by all means, go to uh, see the sessions three. And, we, and um, I want to again thank you all for participating and for the inspiring questions that you send. I feel like we could have easily done another two hours on this. So um, Declan, thanks again. Thank you very much. And thank you all for those wonderful questions, which I'll think more about and maybe come back to in future weeks. Slan. Goodbye.